We've been asked to mark song number 95. And certainly as we arrive a bit later in the service tonight, we, we look forward to the opportunity as always to lift our voices in song. And haven't the songs been very motivational and very encouraging as we, you and I have been reminded about we walk by faith. That exactly takes it to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 where we're directly told we walk by faith and not by sight. It might well be, though, as we come to the 66th and last book in the Bible. May I encourage you to be turning to Revelation 1, and we shall devote our attention tonight primarily to some of the matters contained in that chapter. This is our, the fourth installment in our series of lessons on the book of Revelation. And as you can see in the title, we're going to give thought to, in essence, the prologue and the first matter connected to the seven churches of Asia. As we do all of that, though, we'll certainly make a, a strong effort to let the text of the Bible speak for itself, to allow it to do the talking, and to remind us about the considerations rel relative to that particular presentation. On this whole introductory slide, I have called our attention to a couple of verses from the book of Psalms. In Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven and we are immediately reminded that the steadfastness of the word of God is absolute it is not subject to the fancies or whims of society or to the particulars of men's drama concerning what they wish it meant it is settled in heaven and four verses later in verse number 93 of that same chapter we notice that by the precepts of the word of God you and I are quickened we are made alive we are brought to a position of appreciating the earnestness that goes with life and connection to the God of heaven. It is the case. We come tonight to our fourth lesson in the series of lessons on the Revelation. And as we do that tonight, primarily, our focus will be on the introductory matters of that opening chapter with a mindset of focusing attention on the one delivering it. For that will be so critical to us as it was to them. As we turn our page then to the next particular slide, Revelation chapter 1. Rather than read that chapter in its earnestness, I'll direct our attention to a few of the passages contained in it with a mindset to draw and extract lessons that can be so very helpful to us. One of the things that's always useful about the Revelation, as is true of the other books of the Bible, is to remember that though these were written a long time ago from our perspective. It was the infinite wisdom of God that they addressed matters of concern for those individuals then, and by inspiration they are the continuing matters that the church needs to address and needs to consider even in our day. And that's what makes the revelation so timely. It's what makes it so powerfully important for our day as well. Verse number 1 makes this observation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And therefore we have a systematic deliverance. I've tried to summarize on that slide before you. The Father passing this information to the Son, who directed it by way of a messenger, if you please, an angel who in turn directed it to John, who's by specific revelation delivered it to Christians of that first century era and by inspiration to you and to me as well. 
And shouldn't you and I take powerful note in verse number 3? Brother Cale just read to us that very verse a moment ago. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And immediately a blessing is pronounced upon those who read. Now you and I realize that in that first century era, there was a scroll at some point that was brought into these congregations, and some gentleman would stand up and read from that scroll. A blessing is pronounced upon the one that would read. But there's also a blessing pronounced upon those who hear and those who keep. Might we at least embed in our thinking the realization that the revelation can be understood for they were to keep it. You can't obey what you don't understand. You can't put into practice what you've never appreciated. They were to appreciate the message of that noble book and to keep those things which are written therein. In addition to that, that verse closes with this statement. The time is at hand. The matters contained in the Revelation were for them to appreciate and to put into practice as a blessing for their day. It is not that it would wait for some 20 centuries until some far distant future time. Now it's true that some of the elements of the Revelation may point to a distant time, but not all of it. There were elements of it that were needful and appropriate and in fact necessary for them to put into practice and to obey at that day and at that time. Therefore, when we come to some of those more challenging sections later in the book, we'll not simply slide that under a rug and assert that it's only meaningful for the end of time. Much of it is meaningful for times even as you and I speak now. As you journey forward on that slide with me, it is sweet to notice in verse number 2, the message is in fact the Word of God. It is in fact that testimony of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that blessing pronounced upon those that obey, those that hear, those that read, leads us directly to notice somewhat about John. Verse number 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. It is not that there were only seven congregations of the Lord's church in Asia, but rather these seven apparently were representative of the larger set of other congregations both there and elsewhere, and that it would have to deal with issues and problems which those folks were facing, and which by inspiration you and I may well find ourselves facing as well. Those seven congregations are listed in verse number 11. In order, they are Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And with that, we have the seven churches to whom John in particular wrote, carrying the message which Jesus had delivered for him to share. It might well be in verse 4 that we notice, though, that though John conveyed the message to them, he was not the originator of it. Remember, we learn in verse 1, it came from the Father who gave it to the Son, who passed it to an angel, who gave it, in fact, to John, who sent it to those Christians. And thus, the message didn't originate with John. He was only the blessed one to convey it, to share it, to send it forth to them. It is in that way that we immediately encounter the description. And it's one of the noblest, one of the finest, one of the most remarkable descriptions in all the Bible of Jesus Christ. Would you listen as I read 
beginning in verse number 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And here's our description. Who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That statement is such an anthem of adoration. Look at what the Lord has done. He loved us. He washed us from our sins in His blood. He made us to be kings and priests in the grandest of all kingdoms. That's what the Master has accomplished. It might well be in that connection. You also notice these continuing statements. Verse number 7, Behold, He, and that word He refers to the Christ, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now you and I notice that has not yet been fulfilled. There's yet coming a moment. There's coming a time when he will appear in the clouds. The end of time will certainly be the occurrence when that takes place. The master will have arrived. To draw to a close the affairs of time as you and I know them. To draw to a close the material issues of this universe and all things therein. He cometh with clouds, every eye shall see Him. No one will be able to avoid that moment. No one will be able to somehow be exempted or excused from it. It also adds this particular note that simply follows that one. And every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him, even so amen. Might you and I never forget that every eye shall see Him. And that even includes those who crucified Him. Now the fact is, they have long since been dead. But you and I know the graves will be emptied. All that are in the graves shall come forward in the words of John 5, verses 28 and 29. And in so doing, we realize the grandest of all resurrections in light of the fantastic matter that will be put before one and all that day. As you and I revisit the top of that slide, verse number 8 quickly reminds us He is Alpha and Omega. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. In essence, the Lord says, I am the A to Z. Everything in terms of meaning will be prompted and provided by me. You and I sometimes need to keep that in the forefront of our thinking, understanding that Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, from A to Z, Jesus is the explanation. He is the one providing the essence and the meaning. Did we not read in Ecclesiastes 12, 13? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. Is it any wonder? We thus begin to see in the verses that follow this some description about the sheer greatness of the absolute character of that which is of the God of heaven. Before we launch into the fullness of that, one more statement is given about John. I know that you and I noticed it earlier as we observed some of the early remarks in our series, but oh, how powerful and penetrating it is to hear John himself say in verse number 9, 
I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We learn immediately that John was a vocal spokesman for truth. Though that society did not look highly upon Jesus and upon the church and upon the features concerning the revelation of the gospel, John was courageous and bold, and he would preach the character of the truth. Although these texts do not share it with us, there are other writings, admittedly non-inspired, but who they seemingly suggest John actually lived at Ephesus. And he preached there for many decades. Again, take that with a grain of salt. The Bible doesn't come out and say that. But due to his faithfulness, wherever he was, he was banished to Patmos. He was placed in this secluded, distant island there in the particular Aegean Sea. And in so doing, he was there under arrest because of his allegiance to the gospel. You and I can only be impressed with the courage and the conviction in men like John who would be punished because they would not relinquish and they would not deny the faith of the Lord. Beyond all of that, we now notice this in verse number 11. John, what thou seest, write in a book. And in fact, you and I need ever to remember that the revelation is a drama. It unfolds before our very eyes, and when we, you and I read what John wrote, we can see what he saw, and we can put into practice the significance and the meaning connected to what he saw and what he wrote. It might well be then that our imagination can be a very helpful device to assist us as we give thought to the revelation. On this next slide, you'll notice we journey forward to verses 12 and following. And we do that with these very powerful and penetrating declarations. John says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Wouldn't you be curious? Wouldn't I have been curious? If there was a voice that said, John, what you see, write it in a book. I would be interested to know who it was that said it. And the nature of the being giving this order and command. And so John says, I turned to see who it was who was making this statement. Verse number 12 says, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. John saw seven golden candlesticks. If you wish to look to verse 20, we find the explanation of the candlesticks. The Word of God tells us what it is that they represent. That verse reads, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. As John turned, he saw seven golden candlesticks. But that isn't all he saw. But we already know what the candlesticks represented. It was the seven churches and the thoroughness of what they represented. Verse 13 now says this. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, which we've learned to be the churches, is one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, 
His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like a defined brass as if they'd burned in a fire, in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Immediately would you pause to give some thought to that description? John says, I turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, but there was one in the middle of them. This one in verse 13, like unto the Son of Man. How often do you recollect in the Word of God other references to the Son of Man? How often do you and I remember, didn't Jesus refer to Himself that way? In Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13, you might recall that when He was preaching and speaking with His apostles there in the city of Caesarea Philippi, He said, Whom do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Lord referred to Himself as the Son of Man. On so many other occasions, He chose that device. He chose that language to refer to Himself. You and I might remember, though, that Ezekiel often was referred to that way. For some reason, the God of heaven chose to refer to the prophet Ezekiel as the son of man 90 times in the 48 chapters of Ezekiel. God referred to him as the son of man. And Jesus chose to use that same description to refer to himself. It's true he was the son of God, but at the same time he was properly the recognized son of man in that he was the one through whom man could finally be made whole with God. He was the one, you see, who came ultimately to be the mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Surely this reference to the Son of Man takes us back to some of these other descriptives. Let's look at them one by one. It says, He had a garment down to the foot. That reminds us of nobility. It reminds us of one of high office and great esteem. It also says, His head... And his hairs were white. The symbol of purity. The symbol of innocence. The symbol of absolute givenness to truth. We notice in addition to that, it's a symptom of wisdom. Do you recall in the Old Testament when the hoary head is described as one to whom one could look for appropriate guidance and wisdom and advice? That was said not only in Leviticus 19, but pointed out more than once in the book of Deuteronomy. No wonder at this time in verse number 15 it says, His feet were like burnished brass. And then it goes on to say this, As if they burned in a furnace. I hope our mind races at once back to Daniel chapter 3. You and I remember that there was a fiery furnace. And it was the case that, of course, as Daniel's three friends were thrown in there, due to their conviction of truth and their failure and unwillingness to bow before the great image that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed. You might recall, though, that Nebuchadnezzar and others said, I see not three, but I see one like unto the Son of Man. Don't you and I know that the Lord protected those three Hebrew children? that the Lord, in fact, preserved them through the duration of the time in that fiery furnace, and they came forward not with not so much as a hair singed on their head. Their clothes didn't smell like smoke. Not only were they preserved, they came out in fine shape. 
because the God of heaven had been with them. These people to whom the revelation were written, they too were under great duress, as we learned in our previous lesson. Wouldn't it be of comfort to them to know that the very one who had protected the three Hebrew children would also be there as an element of strength and an element of fortitude and as an element of preservation and occasion? Is it any wonder we close that slide and also note this? What about his voice? The text says, His voice as the voice of many waters. You and I need to take careful note of the metaphors that are used here. The word as helps us appreciate it's not that the voice literally was waters, but it had the sound perhaps in power, perhaps in directness, perhaps in the overflowing intensity that went with it. It was like the sound of many waters. We shall see that again in chapter 14, by the way, and even in chapter 15 as well. But at least for now, as we transition to the next slide, the next few verses now tell us, what about this one in the midst of the candlesticks? Verse 16, please. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Can you imagine now, picture it. Seven golden candlesticks. One in the midst, who is, as we have noted the description, feet, hairs, presentation. But in his right hand were seven stars. As you give appreciation of the seven stars, we now notice that something came out of his mouth. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Can you imagine the reaction of John? We shall see it in a minute. But just imagine how you and I would react with that kind of greatness before our very eyes. That kind of awesomeness. That kind of remarkable character. Seven stars in his right hand. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And to that our mind should race to Hebrews 4 verse 12. <clears throat> in that description we read something about the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And here, that which came out of the mouth of this one who is speaking to John, like a two-edged sword. No wonder we now note this, his countenance likened to the sun. You and I know that it is dangerous to look at the sun without eye protection. It is so bright. It is so emanating. It is so penetrating. The radiation, the sheer intensity of the light will do damage to the eye. I hope it reminds us of Matthew chapter 17 when on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and His appearance was as glistening, as white as it had never been whiter, and like unto the sun in its brightness. Shouldn't that remind us of this text? Is it any wonder that in verse number 17, here's how John reacted. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John fell in amazement. He fell in sheer virtual consideration at that which he had now been privileged to witness. Then the text says this, 
he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Apparently, the very one in whose right hand were those seven stars, he now touched John. Though John first was in the audience, he now became a participant in the activity. This one touched him. And in so doing, he says in verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. With that, couldn't you and I then say, just as I've invited you to notice on that slide, this marvelous character of this countenance of what John had witnessed. You'll notice Jesus said, I was alive, then I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. And that directly brings to our mind that which he underwent. He had been in heaven for all the distant recesses of eternity, but he left that golden place and came to this place, and then he died. But then he was resurrected to life, never to die again. As Jesus made this statement to John, shouldn't that have been an encouragement to those of that day? If these to whom John was to preach, if they in their persecution, they too might ultimately die for their faith. In chapter 6, we'll notice several who did. But yet, what a way to die. In faith, knowing I'm going to a better place than this, and if Jesus, who was the very Son of God, could die for me, can I not die for Him? It's no wonder that chapter closes like this. Verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The very one who himself had confessed that I have the keys of death and of hell. Now that word hell is literally Hades. That realm of departed spirits where all who die in fact go until... Of course, the Lord returns. Jesus said, I have the keys of that place. I can empty it. And so, in fact, He will. And we'll see about that in Revelation 20. Isn't it interesting that He then gives John, who, of course, had then been brought. He had fell as dead, but again, He'd been told, don't you fear. I have the keys of hell and the keys of death. You write the things that are the things you've seen, and the things which shall be hereafter. And that divides the revelation for us. There were certain things which then were, which John was going to pen for us, and there were going to be parts in it which were going to be at some point in the future. John was told to write all of it. And that, of course, leads us to the closing verse, which we noted earlier in that chapter. The seven stars, we are told, are the seven angels. So the stars represented the messengers who were going to convey the things which John delivered to them, the messages for the seven churches. And as we've already learned, those golden candlesticks were in fact the seven churches. Should we not be impressed who or what was in the midst of the churches? Jesus. He had to be the absolute sinner, and He must be the sinner for us. A church who goes about its business, regardless what programs it may, in fact, encourage. If the Lord isn't the sinner, then that church is misdirected. It isn't centered on the right thing, for He is our life, Colossians 3, verse 4. 
John 15, 5 says, Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And thus, any congregation, if it's wise, will always be centered on the Lord, centered on His will, striving to glorify and honor Him. And with that, the opening chapter ends. Haven't we been reminded of so much? And haven't we been encouraged of so much? Notice again, it started, and I called it a prologue. Now notice, the chapter doesn't call itself that way. That's me. And so if that's a poor decision on my part, I beg your forgiveness. But it's a prologue in that it sets before us who is speaking and the nature of the message and the character of the one doing the speaking. And as long as we keep that in mind, it will aid us as we approach what he has to say in some of the later chapters as well. And at that point, we launch into chapter number 2. And with it, we come to the next slide as well. One by one, we're about to see the letters that the Lord directed to the seven churches of Asia. What did He have to say to them? And so, beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 2, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them the which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and are false, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the, de the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I chose to slide in the slide that's now before you as a bit of a summary of all of the letters to the seven churches. And I thought we'd read the one to the Ephesus so that we can begin to put some of these features together. First of all, as you and I look at all seven of these letters over this tonight and also next Sunday evening, we will find that each letter on the whole is relatively brief. But every one of them follows a similar pattern. First, there's a greeting, followed by a commendation, if that's warranted, followed by a reproof, if that's warranted, followed by an exhortation, followed by a promise of reward. Every one of them will have that particular structure to it. You may notice I put question marks beside two of them because of the next comment on that slide. There was one church for which nothing positive was said. The Lord had nothing good to say to them. It was the church at Laodicea. There was nothing positive. You and I will see that in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. There were two of the congregations for which He had no reproof. Nothing negative was said to them. That was the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. Aside from that, we find both commendation 
and we find reproof. There's one other thing that I think would be wise for you and me to notice. In every one of the seven letters, Jesus said an identification of him as the speaker. This, was, this did not originate with John. It didn't originate with some other individual being an early apostle. The Lord wanted them to know that he was the spokesman. And then in every case, he also said this, I know thy works. These congregations were in rather separate places. Ephesus was very different than Philadelphia. Thyatira was very different than Smyrna. But the Lord to every one of them said, I know your works. They couldn't hide anything from him. They couldn't conceal anything from him. He knew exactly what was to be commended. He knew what good choices were being made. But he also knew what errors there were. I would think that's great matters for reflection for any church today. Jesus could equally well today say, Pippin, I know your works. I know what needs to be commended, but I also know what ought to be reproved. And that's good for us to think about in our individual lives as well. Is it any wonder that one other thing might also be noted? In every one of the cases, Jesus said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Perk up and listen. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. That somewhat reminds us of some of the Lord's parables. You may recall that he said that back in Matthew 13. But here to the seven churches of Asia, it is with those at least general remarks concerning all the letters. I thought tonight we would give more attention to the letter to Ephesus. It's the one, first one of the group of seven. And it's the one you and I just noted by way of reading a moment ago. I'll not spend a lot of time on the historical matters of the city, but I did want to be very brief in listing it this way. Ephesus was one of the major cities of the ancient Roman Empire. There were a number of things that could be said. I chose merely to list this. It was a renowned center of banking in the ancient world. Its commerce was known far and wide. It was a major port town. That means quite often if you wanted to do business or commerce in far distant places, you may well need to pass through Ephesus. Make usage of the banking matters that were available there in order to proceed on that journey. There was a large governmental center there and furthermore, it was a very important religious center. In Acts chapter 19, we learn it was the center for the worship and service of the goddess Diana. Her temple was in Ephesus. And so folks from all over the place would come to Ephesus so they could worship Diana. Ephesus was a major town. That leads me to notice, though, that with those great matters of evil came great opportunity, and that's what Paul said more than once in the First Corinthian letter. It might well be that we should appreciate that Domitian one of those Caesars of the ancient Roman Empire. He awarded the city of Ephesus a provincial imperial temple. And so it was a temple dedicated again to the matters that the Roman Empire would approve. And as long as Rome, as Rome had given their approval, may I say again, 
folks would flock to Ephesus from all over the empire virtually in an effort to support what Rome approved. It was in that place that there was a church of the Lord, the church of Jesus Christ. No wonder on that slide I've asked you to notice that Jesus identified himself to that congregation as the one again holding the seven stars. And with the one holding the seven stars, he was in the midst of the candlesticks. And that should have reminded the church at Ephesus, the Lord, of course, was with them. I might suggest to you in that light as well, he commended them. In fact, he highly commended them for these brief observations. First, for their labor. They had worked on behalf of the Lord for their patience. They had been perseverant even through difficulties and challenges. He pointed out that they had tried, tested some who claimed to be apostles and found them false. That helps us see, doesn't it, that, that the early saints had a challenge. Someone could show up into your town and begin to preach and claim, the apostles sent me. How would you know? The church at Ephesus tried them, tested them, and found them to be liars. Jesus commended them for that. You may notice in the verse that followed, He also commended them for recognizing the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus said, I hate that teaching. You and I need to remember, Jesus doesn't approve everything that men say is. Here was a group of people teaching something, and the Lord said, I hate what they're teaching. Doesn't that appear strong language? It is to that I would add one final thing. Although Jesus commended them where commendation was in order, He reproved them. And He did it like this. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Isn't that word nevertheless a very powerful word? Maybe you remember some time when you had conversation with your parents and they had good things to say until a while, but the time came, they said, nevertheless. And then they had to share something about your choices and your behavior which led them to be disapproving. Jesus said good things as long as He could, and then He said, nevertheless, you've left your first love. I have somewhat against you. It would appear then that the fire of passion in the church at Ephesus had grown cold. They were going through the motions now. They still assembled, and they still had some interest in matters of truth, but the passion and fire didn't burn within them anymore. Religion had seemingly become a habit. May you and I never let religion become a habit. Jesus deserves better than that. We ought to love the services of the church and various other ways we can serve Him. That we can in fact serve Him with our heart because He first loved us. To this church, Jesus said, I've got somewhat against you for this. I wonder what He encouraged them to do. You noticed it, didn't you, in verse number 6 and 7. He encouraged them to repent. Repent and do the first works. No wonder in that connection you and I should also be reminded that our zeal should never be allowed to grow cold. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, we notice there that you and I as Christians are those who have been bought with a price. And the consequence of that is that we are able to be those who flame with passion. 
zealous of good works is the actual rendering in the King James Version. Amazingly enough, exactly one chapter later in Titus 3.14, he says, Let ours also learn to maintain good works. And thus, as you and I seek to maintain those, we do it because we love the Lord. One final thing before we close our lesson tonight might be this church in Ephesus, as emblematic of various congregations perhaps in our day, should be a testimony to us that the Lord knows our works. And He will commend when commendation is in order, but He will reprove when that's the order of the moment. I hope each of us are mindful of our life so we can examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. As you and I have given some thought to Ephesus, we close the lesson like this. In this grand finale to the Bible, we have thus seen a prologue in which the spokesman Jesus the Christ has been described in the various ways that He was in chapter 1. But among the descriptives, may we never forget, it is in His blood we were washed from our sins. It is He that's coming again with clouds, and it's He who has the keys of death and of hell. Shouldn't you and I then desire to be pleasing in His sight? You and I have found the church in Ephesus did many things that were good, but they also had some things that needed correction. If that's true about your life or mine, may we be about the business of taking care of those corrections. Taking care of pursuing the Word of God so that we, like that great two-edged sword that came out of the Lord's mouth in chapter number 1, that you and I too can recognize the blessing that's ours to be right near the side of Jesus the Christ. Tonight, if there's someone in this assembly that's perhaps never become a Christian, then oh, what better night than this one could there be? The understanding that goes with serving Jesus, the blessing that's pronounced with Him. Did you notice? He pronounced to those at Ephesus that were faithful and that did repent that they'll be able to partake of the tree of life. We'll see that same tree again when we get to chapter 22. But at least for now, aren't we reminded Jesus is the one who can grant entrance to that place. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in some way, maybe not as one who has never obeyed the gospel, but the one who has but is no longer faithful. Won't you come back to your first love just like Ephesus was told to? The same word that was given to them would be the word that you and I would wish given to us. If we could help you tonight in some way, won't you repent of those sins, make confession of them? And we certainly would invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.